I feel like our videos are more exciting than my preaching. Um, no, it was good. Uh, glad you guys are here. Hope, hope everyone's doing well this morning. Um, if you're new here, this is, a good, this is a good weekend to come because we're starting a new book of the Bible. What we do here is we go through whole books and we just wrapped up the book of Romans, which is quite an endeavor. And we're getting into a book I've never taught before. And um, it is interesting. I, I love the Old Testament. I, I, I'm really disheartened to hear how many Christians kind of disregard the Old Testament. And, and I think the Old Testament is so fascinating because people have not changed. <laughs> we, we have been making the same mistakes for a really, really long time. And we're gonna get into the book of Nehemiah, which is 2,500 years old. That's how long ago this book was written. And all the dumb things we do now, you read this and you're like, wow, they did dumb things back then too. And it's, it's interesting. And you see the need for God. You see the need for Jesus Christ. And um, without reading the Old Testament, we really don't understand why God sent his only son to die on a cross. But when you read the Old Testament, you're like, man, humanity was messed up. And so when you read the Old Testament, a lot of people get confused. The Old Testament is often more descriptive than it is prescriptive. What that means is just because people did it in the Old Testament doesn't mean that we should always do it. And people always, uh, they'll send emails and they say, hey, I thought that, you know, like, we're only supposed to have like one spouse, but all these, all these dudes in the Bible had, you know, 12 wives and a couple of concubines on the side and they killed people and they did these things. I'm like, well, they did do those things. That doesn't mean we should do those things. And, it, and, and we see the ramification of those actions throughout the Old Testament. And that's why we have a New Testament, because we were messed up, right? So it's important to read that stuff. So we're going to get into a, um, an obscure, interesting book called Nehemiah. It's sandwiched in between Ezra and Esther in the Old Testament, so in the beginning of your Bible. And before I pray and actually get into the scripture, which we'll get through chapter one really, really quickly today, I wanna give you a little bit of background and kind of give you a target, what we're gonna aim for today. So here's what we're gonna aim for. Here's kind of our thesis or, or, or kind of our, our thought that we're gonna leave with. And this will make a lot of sense once we get through this chapter. What we're gonna talk about is this, is we all come to a, a crossroads in our life, every single one of us in this room, every human, to where we either decide to pursue a life of comfort which is basically our kingdom, right? That's the culture we live in, building everything up around self, right? Or we choose to put ourselves aside in this life and we choose to pursue the kingdom of God. So what we're gonna talk about a little bit today, interestingly enough, in a culture that, that very much uh, this problem needs to be addressed, is we, if we call ourselves Christians, will we pursue our own comforts or Will we lay those comforts and pleasures aside and pursue the kingdom of God? Will we pursue the temporary or will we pursue the eternal? That's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. But hey, let me give you a little bit of history on the book of Nehemiah. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything will be on the screen. Everything is on the Experience Community app. But let me set this book up a little bit. We'll get into chapter one and um, we'll see what happens. The first thing is this. If you're reading through the Bible, there are two different books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah. Originally, these were written as one piece. They were written as one book. And the reason they divided them later on, it doesn't hurt the credibility of the Bible, but you kind of have a part one and a part two of the same story. Book of Nehemiah was written around 446 BC, 2,500 years ago, long time ago. It was written to a group of Jews who had returned from the Babylonian exile. If you don't know what that is, I'm gonna tell you what that is here in a second. Don't worry about it. Nehemiah, the author of this, was a Jew, but he did not live in Israel. He lived in what is modern day Iraq, okay? And he worked for the Persian king, a guy named Artaxerxes. If you're having a son and you just can't think of a name, that one's pretty unique, Artaxerxes. And what Nehemiah was, was he was a cupbearer. This, this is an interesting profession. Not a very difficult profession, but a very stressful profession. What Nehemiah did is every time the king was about to eat or drink, Nehemiah would taste the food first to make sure that it wasn't poisoned, and then he would give it to the king. So every time Nehemiah ate or drank, everyone just kind of was like, <laughs> looking to see if he would keel over, and if he didn't, the king could have, have dinner, right? This was a little bit more than that, the cupbearer of a king was actually kind of a counselor to the king as well. 
So you had a Jewish person living in a foreign land who was a, probably a very close friend to the Persian king, the most powerful man in the world, a guy named, uh, a guy named Artaxerxes. So how in the world did a Jew end up in Iraq, in this area, working for the Persian king? So if you wanna know a little bit of history, when it comes to empires, this is not just biblical history, this is history history. The first great empire we had was the Egyptian empire. The Egyptian empire was overthrown by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were overthrown by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and the book of Daniel. So if you go back to the book of Daniel, this is when the Babylonians came in and they took over most of the civilized world, part of that being Jerusalem. And when Nebuchadnezzar was king, he pulled the brightest, sharpest young men, three of them were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, out of Israel, brought a bunch of these young men back to Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq, and they became citizens and worked for the kingdom in, in Babylon. So this happened with the Babylonians. Then the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians and it happened again. More exiles coming out of Jerusalem and going back to Babylon. And so this is how Nehemiah ended up in this area, okay? When this happened though, a lot of Jews were still left in Israel. They were still there. So there was a, a remnant, which is important. We'll get to that here in a second. But there was a small group of Jews left in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel, okay? So if you're near a screen, this is a map. I, I shouldn't have said that, you all know this is a map. Um, <laughs> and so this kind of shows you, I like to know, when I read the Bible, I kind of like to know where I'm at geographically. This arrow on the left is pointing to modern day Jerusalem, okay, modern day Israel. If you go east, a little less than 1,700 miles, you have what is modern day Iraq, where you have Babylon and then the city we're gonna be talking about today, Susa, okay? So this is important. I like to see this stuff because nowadays if we fly 1,700 miles, it's like, okay, it takes us a couple hours, no big deal, right? We complain that maybe we didn't get a meal or something on the flight, but, but it's pretty easy for us. When Nehemiah goes back home to rebuild his city, uh, that's a pretty arduous trip when you're riding on like camel or, or donkey or horseback or however he got across, like 1,700 miles is 1,700 miles. That's, that's pretty tough. So just to let you know what kind of a distance he traveled to rebuild his home. Okay, so what happens in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah is this. There are three different Jewish men who gain favor with the Persian king. There's two of them, Cyrus and Artaxerxes, over about a 70-year span, but they gain favor with them. And these three different men get to go back to their homeland and start rebuilding their homeland. The first one was a guy named Zerubbabel. What he did, this is very important, he went back and he said, well, the most important thing we can start rebuilding is the church, the temple, right? So he starts building back the temple. About 60 years later, Ezra shows up and he starts rebuilding back the law. The first five books of the Bible is the law and he starts reestablishing the law in the community. So you had the house of worship, reestablishing basically law and order. And then Nehemiah comes along and he starts fortifying the city, building a wall of protection around the city. That's what Nehemiah contributes. This book is about building a wall, basically. It's not really about building a wall, but that's what they're doing in the book of Nehemiah, okay? So this is what these three men went to do, to go back and rebuild their homeland. Now, here's where we turn, and this is why this book of the Bible is so important for us today. What we will learn from the, the, from the book of Nehemiah is this. Is it good to build church? Sure, it's good for us to have a place to, to do what we're doing right now. That's important. Is it good to have God-honoring laws? Yes, that's very, very important. Is it good to rebuild the city and do social justice initiatives? Yes, those are great things. What we're gonna learn in the book of Nehemiah is this. Without placing God first, you can pass all the laws, feed all the homeless people, elect all the right officials, do all the social reform, but without God in the mix, it all comes up short. That's what we're gonna learn through the book of Nehemiah. If God is not the first priority, you can do all the social stuff you wanna do and it's just gonna come up flat. Because the only way that people are going to change is if God changes the heart. And that should be the ultimate mission of the church. Is, is, is to connect people to God so God can touch people's hearts and change them, okay? 
We're gonna see a lot of other things in the book of Nehemiah. You're gonna see that God is faithful. God is super faithful. <laughs> We're gonna see that this is a book that, that teaches us good leadership skills, teamwork, servitude, how to deal with opposition, right? How to deal with naysayers. Another thing we're gonna see in the book of Nehemiah is not only is it important to pray to God, it is important to go out and do good things for God. So a lot of time Christians are like, I prayed about it. And God's like, okay, that's great, but now go out and do something about it. And Nehemiah is, is both prayerful and he's active. And we're gonna see those things in the book of Nehemiah, okay? So I'm gonna pray. We will get through this very, very short chapter uh, relatively quick and um, take communion today and we'll start, start traveling down the road of, of studying the book of Nehemiah. I think you'll enjoy it. It's, it's uh, very, very interesting, okay? So let me pray. We'll dive into this and um, see where God takes us this morning, all right? <sighs> Father, I love you. Uh, God, first and foremost, I want to thank you for the Bible. It is, it is riveting. It is, it is uh, a fascinating piece of work. And God, it is our instruction and it is our clarity on how we are to live, God. It, it teaches us our history. It teaches us about you. And it teaches us how we are to live in relationship with you, God. Thank you for this book. I pray that as we study it today, God, that it's a blessing. It's a blessing to us, Lord, and I pray that, that we are a blessing to you this morning, God. We pray, Lord, for FCA, great nonprofit that we work with, and the fact that they are getting your word out to high school athletes, God. We thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for our four campuses, and I pray that you bless all four of our campuses, God, and the different counties they're in. We pray that you bless all the churches in those counties where our churches are, God, that your kingdom would advance, that we can be united as much as possible, God, and um, Lord, that ultimately you will be honored. Father, be with us today, God. Teach us something today. And be with me as I do my best to teach your word. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit and let's, uh, let's break this down. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. During the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and distress. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned." So where they are, again, I, I like setting. I don't know if any of you guys are, are like that when you read the Bible. So the, the months of Chislev were the end of the year. It was like the winter months. And what would happen is the king of Persia would travel a little bit to the east to an area called Susa, and he, he basically had a winter home. So that's where Nehemiah was. He was always with the king, and they were in their summer area, in the area of Susa, okay? While he was there, some old friends of Nehemiah come to visit him. They come to visit him and he says, hey, how are our brothers and sisters, our, our, our fellow countrymen, how are they doing in Judah? Judah is the Southern part of Israel at this time. And he says, how are my brothers and sisters in that area doing? How are things holding up? And so Nehemiah asked them about this, right? He asked them about the remaining people in Jerusalem because there was this remnant that was kind of neglected out there. And this remnant isn't just from the exiles. The idea of a Jewish remnant goes throughout not only the entire Bible, it goes throughout all of human history. We're still seeing it today. What this means, in Genesis chapter 12, God made a, a, a promise to the first Jew, Abraham, that his people would always be on planet Earth until Jesus came back and ended time as we know it. That was a promise from God to Abraham. What is fascinating is not just in the Bible, do we see that every civilization that is mentioned in the Bible has come and gone. To this day, the Jews still remain. Not only that, if you study just history, ever, ever since we've had recorded history, if you look at a map, uh, Israel, the nation of Israel, that little, that little speck on planet Earth, surrounded by some of the most powerful, wealthiest nations in the world, 
who have always been at war with this little bitty sliver of a country and they have never been able to overtake the Jews. Why? Because they just have the best military and because they're just so strategic and have good armies? No, it's because God had said, you will never wipe these people out. Adolf Hitler couldn't do it. All the different uh, uh, armies in Iraq and Iran and Sudan and all these areas around them, they cannot drive them into the sea. No one can because God has a promise to the Jewish people and that still stands today. We've even been seeing it in the news in the last year. Everyone's always coming at the Jews and no one can ever overtake them. And everyone's like, why? Now you know why, right? Because there's something spiritual about that. But the remnant that was in Israel, he asked about them. He asked about them, Nehemiah asked about them because he knew that his boss, Artaxerxes, didn't really care for the Jews back in Jerusalem. In fact, several times when Ezra and Zerubbabel and other people were trying to do different projects and rebuild the city, Artaxerxes had shut those things down several times, right? They had started and then got shut down. So Nehemiah asked his friends, hey, how's everything going over there? Because I know my boss isn't really a huge fan. And so Nehemiah, here's what's interesting. This is where we're gonna take a turn. Nehemiah lived 1,700 miles away from his homeland. And he was in a comfortable position. He hung out with the most powerful man in the world. He ate the best food in the world, as long as it wasn't poisoned, right? He ate the best food in the world. He probably hung around beautiful women and influential people. He lived in the lap of luxury. He got to travel for free. He lived a good, comfortable life. So why in the heck did Nehemiah care about people 1,700 miles away? He had it good. The reason he cared about people who were suffering 1,700 miles away is because those were his people. Those were his brothers and sisters under God. And even though he didn't live by them, even though he didn't even know them personally, he wanted those people to be taken care of because God loved those people. We're gonna get to that a little bit more here in a second. So what he found out though is the walls of the city had been torn down and the gates had been burned. Now, we don't have to have walls around cities nowadays. We don't have to, and I'm not trying to get political. We don't have to have a wall around the entire U.S. border because we have much more advanced ways of protecting ourselves, right? We have missiles and we have jets and we have the Star Wars program. That's not lightsabers. That's a thing under Ronald Reagan. We have this basically this, this way to protect our, I said that last night at the seven and all these like 20-somethings were like, Star Wars, Star I love Star Wars. And I'm like, it's a different Star Wars. Anyways. We have all these different systems to keep us safe. We don't, we don't need a, a literal wall, right? In this time, if a city did not have a literal wall around it, they were in trouble. Any time during the night or during the day or whatever, neighboring, neighboring armies could come in and just basically ransack them. So you had to have a fortified wall around the city with gates and people protecting it. You had to have that. And if you found out that a city did not have a wall, you could assume the city was basically in ruins because there's no means of it being protected. So when Nehemiah heard that there was no wall, he basically understood that means there's basically no city. It has been completely destroyed probably by this point and that, that bothered him. And so here's what we're gonna get to as we work through Nehemiah. Is it important to make sure that we are safe? Yes. Is it important to, to lock your doors at night? I would advise you lock your doors at night, right? Is it safe to have insurance and have money in the bank just in case something happens? Yes, all those things are very, very important. But what we're gonna learn in the book of Nehemiah is this, even more than those things, right? The, the wall that the people of God had really neglected was their relationship with their God. And so this is where the uncomfortable conversation, I'm talking about for us, the uncomfortable conversation of, what is your security? What is your safety? What do you trust? Is it, a, is it a gun on your hip? Is that what makes you feel safe? Is it having $50,000 in your savings? Is that what makes you feel safe? What makes you feel safe and secure, right? Is it those things? Or is it your relationship with God knowing that he, that he has you in his hands? Of course, we are wise, right? I hope you have money in your savings. I hope you lock your doors at night. But at the end of the day, 
Do you depend on your savior, the sovereign God of the universe, to keep you safe, to lead you, to protect you, to protect your family? That's the direction we're going to go throughout the book of Nehemiah, okay? Next part. You guys are so quiet this morning. (laughs) There you go. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins that we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the furthest horizon, I will gather them there and bring them to a place where I choose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man, that's the king. And then he says, at that time, I was the king's cupbearer. Okay, I'm gonna get get preachy here for a second. So we see that Nehemiah, when he heard the news that his homeland was in ruins, the people were scattered, he wept. He wept. He wasn't just a little upset, he wept. He didn't just weep for his people. Here's where we're gonna get into important stuff that, that applies to us. He prayed for his people and he fasted for his people. Now, let me ask you, when is the last time you looked at the state of the United States of America, the emotional, physical, uh, 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 spiritual state of our people, right? Our people. When is the last time you looked at that and it just absolutely broke your heart? Absolutely broke your heart. And then what is your response to that brokenness? Is our response to the brokenness of our society to write like a, a snappy Facebook post? or buy a bumper sticker, let me, let, you, let me let you in on something. Facebook and bumper stickers are not changing anything. What changes something is when you go out into society, build relationships, show the love of Christ, and get to know people. Let me tell you what else changes things. Prayer, Christians. Fasting, Christians. That means that we lay our comforts aside and focus that time on praying for people that do not have a relationship with Christ. Your bumper sticker does not save souls. Your social media does not save souls. You have, the Bible even says the only way people will hear the gospel is if we speak the gospel. It's pretty logical, simple stuff. But until the church gets over their self-righteous self, goes out into the community and gets to know people who are lost, more people will not be saved. More people will not be saved. But you, let me tell you what, church, It starts with praying and fasting. We must be praying and we must be fasting. And this isn't just a one-time thing. Well, I did pray one time, Corey. Nehemiah prayed for the same thing for four months before a door opened. Day in, day out, he said, day and night. I would pray multiple times, Nehemiah said, for God to open up a door for me to have an opportunity to help those that are in a bad position. We must be persistent in our prayers, but we are a culture that that we think we deserve everything right now and I shouldn't even have to ask for it and that's not the way it works with God. That we need to be persistent, we need to be speaking to him on a daily basis. You and I should be praying for the lost people of our community every day, every single day. And so Nehemiah prays, 
And it's not even a very long prayer. Listen, we don't have to ramble on. Jesus's prayer was extremely short. But Nehemiah's prayer, though short, is extremely well said, well written, concise, powerful. The first thing Nehemiah opens up his prayer with is the acknowledgement of how good God is. Now, guys, I'm just getting, I'm just gonna, we're gonna go there today. How often when we pray is our prayer all about us? When is the last time you got down on your knees and just affirmed how good God is? God, you are good. God, you are powerful. God, you are amazing, omnipotent. You are our omnipresent. You are everything, God. And that's how Nehemiah starts off. You're a good God. You're awe-inspiring. You're gracious to those that keep your commands. What that is when we acknowledge how good God is, we are being humble that God is bigger than us, beyond us. And as a Christian, until we get to a point to where we, we, we acknowledge how amazing he is, we cannot grow as a believer. That we have to be inspired. It has to be, we have to think of God as awesome, right? And so in prayer, what is so amazing about prayer is you and I get to approach the unapproachable God. Now, what is fascinating about that and what we should know about that is because I can go to God in prayer, it should tell me that he is attentive to me, that he cares about me, that he wants what's best for me. I have not earned the right to talk to God, but because he opens that door, that should show me that he's good, that he cares about the things that I need. And if we will build a relationship with Jesus, if we will trust Jesus, if we will live by the commands of Jesus, the things in our lives that need attention will get attention. It may not always be what you want, but it'll be what you need. It'll be what you need. And we have to trust that God knows what's better for us, even than we know for ourselves. Yeah. So another thing he does, let's go a little bit further. Look how important this is. Nehemiah addresses the sin in his life. He says, he says God, forgive me and forgive my father and forgive my family and forgive my people, right? He's talking about his sinful nature that even if Nehemiah hadn't done anything in that moment to sin, Nehemiah knows that he is prone to sin. So he addresses that, God, I'm gonna fall short. God, I'm broken, I'm, I'm, I'm not everything I should be. Forgive me for that. Why is that important? It's important because in the book of James, he was the, the biological brother of Jesus, James says that only the prayers of the righteous people are effective. Do you know what that means? If we have sin in our lives, we cannot be shocked when God is not answering our prayers. Because listen, first and foremost, God wants you to go to heaven. And if you're praying for your marriage to be restored, but you're living in sin, God is more concerned with you going to heaven than even your marriage being restored. And the reason why the marriage part hasn't been addressed is your soul is still screwed up. So when we come to God in prayer, God, you're awesome. And the second thing we should do after acknowledging how good he is is acknowledge how bad we are. Lord, I'm sinful. I make mistakes. God, forgive me. And when I live righteous and I'm repentant of my sin, God will start to do amazing things in my life. But here's the thing. If you come up to me, and this has happened six billion times since I've been a Christian, when people come up to me and they say, Pastor, can you pray for my boyfriend and I? Can you pray for our relationship? And I'll say, are you guys sleeping together? Are you having sex outside of marriage? Yes, we are. I can't pray for your relationship. You are choosing to be distant from God and he can't bless your relationship. Man, I'm sorry to tell you guys truth this morning, but, but, but this is the reason why God doesn't answer a lot of your prayers. You can't, you can't tell God to go over in the corner and then be mad when he's not close to you. You didn't invite him in. Well, I don't know why God's not doing anything because you choose not to live with him. You choose not to be in a relationship with him. So we have to address sin, step away from sin, and then you'll be blown away by the things that God does around you, in you, through you, to you, the whole nine yards. But the principle is this. Nehemiah quotes Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible. And Moses said that if the people of God are close to God, he'll bring them together. But if they're not close to God, he's gonna scatter them. Nehemiah accepted this. The people of God had been exiled, right? Scattered for 70 years. And Nehemiah didn't blame God. 
God, the United States is so broken and torn apart. What are you doing? And God's like, you guys kicked me out. That's why you're in the mess you're in. That's why you're scattered. When we choose to live outside of God's commands, we have chosen to live in chaos. This is the United States of America. I've been saying this for years. I find it laughable when I hear Christians go, we are one nation under God. I'm like, you have your head in the sand. The Christianity is the most declining religious affiliation in the United States. The gospel is basically blowing up in every corner of the world except for this nation. We are falling apart. We are being ripped apart at the seams. Get your head out of the sand and realize we as a people have turned our back on God, hence the state of our culture. It's awful and it's our fault. It is chaotic and it's our fault. We as a people have said, God, you're not welcome. You are not welcome. And we get exactly what the Bible told us we would get. On the flip side of that, the Bible says, but, right? But if you will come back to me, if you'll return to me. Listen, whenever you read the Old Testament, Moses did this a lot. <laughs> Nehemiah does it right here. God, let me remind you of this thing. He, they're not really reminding, God doesn't forget what he said. <laughs> what they're doing is they're, they're reminding themselves. Nehemiah, Nehemiah is reminding himself what God said. That if we're arrogant, listen, this is very important. If we're arrogant, we're on our own. And when we're on our own, we're gonna destroy ourselves. Does anyone else find it remarkable? You live in a culture right now that is an individualistic culture. It's all about the individual, it's all about self. And we are ripping ourselves apart. This is exactly what the Bible says. If we try to live absent of God and do it our own way, you're gonna screw it up. We are seeing it. On the flip side, the Bible says if we will humble ourselves and acknowledge that we need God, that he will bring us to a place where we will flourish and a place where we will, we will find contentment. Now for the Jews, this was literal. If you guys will get your act together, I'll, I'll give you a place to, to dwell. But if you don't, I'm gonna scatter you. For us, it's a metaphor, right? That we will be scattered as individuals if we are not humble and aligned with what God wants us to do. And so Nehemiah didn't have much to offer, right? None of us have much to offer God. The only thing we have to offer God is our allegiance to him. It's, it's our submission to him. So Nehemiah prayed. He said, God, I'm at your disposal. And he said, give me success. Give me success at what you want me to do. Let me tell you, the key to everything is relenting to God. It is submitting. We hate that word in our culture. I ain't gonna submit to nobody. No one's gonna tell me what to do, right? Got rights, I'm an American. We are called to submit. We are called to trust in God. And if we can learn to, to rely on Jesus for our success, I put that in those little quotes because we have jacked up the definition of success in a major way. Success is not you being rich and living in the best neighborhood in town. If you do, that's great. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with monetary success, none whatsoever. Real success though is you having a healthy marriage. It's you raising your kids in the ways of the Lord. That's success. It's you being a decent person that honors the statutes and commands of God. You blessing the community. You being generous. This is biblical success. And if we will rely on Jesus for that kind of success, he will give you that kind of success. Because here's the thing. We need to trust Jesus so much that we ask for whatever he wants for us and know that whatever he wants for us is better than anything we could want for ourselves. Yeah. That he has a better plan for us than we even have for ourselves. Having what Jesus wants for us versus what we want for us, I give you my word, will be the best life you can possibly live. The most content life you can possibly live. So let's talk about this a little bit. What Nehemiah is showing us in chapter one is that humans are symbiotic. Symbiosis means that we're all connected, right? That if something happens to one of us, it kind of affects all of us. Maybe indirectly, maybe it takes time, but we're all connected. This isn't like a new age, kind of quirky, weird Eastern philosophy symbiosis. This is, this is a spiritual thing. In fact, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer with it. 
Let me tell you what that translates to. It translates to, we live in the most prosperous nation that has ever existed, right? There's money floating around everywhere right now. It's gonna come back to get us eventually, but anyways, we live in the most prosperous nation in the world right now. If you go over to Africa, any part of Africa, you have people starving to death. You have kids running around in the streets naked. Their toys are made out of trash that they stick together and make a soccer ball out of it. And so what happens is this, even though it may be on the, the literal exact opposite side of the world that we live in, those brothers and sisters in Christ that are starving to death or getting dysentery and dying in their, their mud hut because they don't have fresh water or they don't have access to Bibles or they don't have access to churches or whatever the case may be, even though that's on the other side of the world and you may never go to that side of the world because if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer, you should be concerned. That should be something we should give our resources to. That should be something that we, we, we sac sacrifice in the United States. We might have to get one less soy latte this month, but if we can sacrifice that, we can give that money and that money goes a long way. We support mentor leaders here in town. It takes $35 to, to support a kid. We support a, a, a kid in Togo, Africa. That gives them healthcare, gives them access to school, gives them access to the word of God and teaching. 35 bucks a month. That's you giving up coffee, right? Well, I can't do that. It's just not in my budget. How many streaming sites do you have? What does that equal up to? Man, let's talk like Christians this morning, guys. Let's talk about it. That if one part of the body suffers, it all suffers. So the health of the church should matter to us. Let's take it locally. Next time you guys get on social media and start bashing another church, maybe you should think of the fact that if any of the churches in the United States are hurting, it hurts us too. So maybe you should be a little slow to speak when you start bashing that pastor or talking about the Baptists or the Church of Christ or the Pentecostals or the Catholics or whatever the case may be. Now listen, we are to point out heresy. If there's a church teaching heresy, I'll be the first one to vocally say something about heresy. But if I just disagree with how the Church of Christ worship, I don't care. I still want them to go to heaven. I still want them to be healthy. I don't care if they don't play instruments. I just care if they teach the word of God. I'm not against them. I'm for them. And you should be too because we're all brothers and sisters under Christ. I get sick of seeing Christians constantly bashing Christians. It's not the way it should be. So first and foremost, we should care about the health of our own family. Secondly, you should care about those who are not in our family yet because humanity is symbiotic too. And when, when people are out there suffering that don't know Christ, that should bother us. Which leads me to this question, does sin still disturb you? Think about it a second. Does it disturb you? Or have we become so desensitized to sin? So when I'm watching a movie with my two girls, right? We're watching a, a PG movie. Let's say we're watching something and, you know, there's no swearing in it. There's nothing bad like that, but it's based around a couple that's living together and they're not married. But it's PG, it's clean. Have we gotten to where that still upsets us a little bit, right? That upsets us that they are glorifying something that, that the Bible says we are not to do, that my kids are watching this thinking that this is normal. Does that bother us? Or does it only bother if it's, if it's two men? See, because here's where we are. Your sin bothers me, but, but I'm acceptable. I'm okay with what I do, right? Look how evil everyone else is, but I'm fine. I have an acceptable sin in my life. 95% of all Christians lose their virginity before they're married, and that doesn't really bother us anymore. We just wanna focus on someone else's struggle where we have this cancer that has permeated the people of God. <laughs> Does sin still bother you guys? Does it still bother you? Does it still upset you? Does the current state of your culture, does it, does it bother you? Do we care for all people? Yes, I love all people, really? You love the right-wing Trump supporter? You love them? You wanna hug them? Get dinner with them? Love them? You love the, 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 the extreme left-wing person, right? You love them? If you're a, if you're a Republican, love them? You, you love all people? Does it disturb us? Does it bother us? that people are lost, that they don't know their creator. Does that upset you? I hope it does. I hope it does. 
Are we praying and fasting for the broken? Or are we just angry? Are we just saying hateful things? I'm sick of Christians constantly saying horrible things about the president of the United States. I didn't vote for him, but it bothers me because all the time that you're spending writing all that stuff, you could be praying for the man that leads your country. You could have done it for Donald Trump. You could have done it for Barack Obama. But like I said, your Facebook post is doing nothing. But the fervent prayers of a righteous Christian can do something. And more than I want to bash Joe Biden, I want Joe Biden to know Jesus Christ. I want Kamala Harris to know Jesus Christ. I want all the senators and governors and politicians to know him. And so we pray for them, or we should. Do you pray for the broken? Do you pray for the lost? Are we persistently seeking the will of God? I prayed one time for it. Pray again. My God, do it again. Keep searching. Keep seeking the face of God. If it takes time, that's okay. Keep digging. Keep persistently seeking him. Let me ask you this. What walls keep you safe? What gives you a sense of security? Is it the fact that the Dow Jones is 35,000? That's higher than it's ever been. Does that make you sleep good at night? Does the fact that you can put a firearm on your hip, does that make you sleep good at night? The fact that we, we, we have the freedom to say whatever we want, does that, does that make you, is that your wall? Is that your protection? Is that your hope? Is that your security? Let me tell you this. All those things I've mentioned, they can be taken just like that. You know what can't be taken? Your relationship with the creator of the universe. No one can take that from you. It is the only real sense of security we should ever have in this life. It's the relationship we have with God. And I have been disappointed to see Christians in the last couple of years. Well, if so-and-so gets elected, life's over. Really? Life is over. Amazing. Amazing. What is our sense of security? Is God our security? Or is it something that we think we can control? What is the wall that we're trying to build? And if we truly say that God is our sense of safety, our security, our hope, if we believe that, we will live by the commands of Jesus. You know what Jesus said in the book of John? If you love me, you'll keep my commands. I love Jesus. I don't do what the Bible tells me. Then you don't love Jesus. In the words of Jesus himself, if you love me, you'll do what I tell you to do. You'll do what I tell you to do. What it boils down to, brothers, sisters, is this. It's a heart condition. There are two choices. There are two options that all of us will be faced with in this life, and you'll be faced with it multiple times, but ultimately, there are two roads to take. There is the road where I'm gonna do it my way, and there's a lot of Christians that do this. I'm not talking about a bunch of lost people right now. I'm talking about a bunch of Christians, right, who come to church, and when they're confronted with their truth, they're just like, that's mean. I'm not gonna do it that way. I'm gonna do it my, I think the word says this, right? Even though it's blatant, clear, crystal clear. And so what happens is, is we become prideful and arrogant. And when we become prideful and arrogant, and when we become our number one objective, the Bible says you're gonna be scattered, both personally as an individual and as a people group. Look at the United States of America. I don't know if we've ever been as divided as we have been in the last couple of years. Absolutely divided. Do you find it remarkable that the more that Christianity declines in the United States, the more everything negative <laughs> physical abuse, violence, depression, anxiety, all these things, division, hatred, racism. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? Because the Bible says, if you're not close to me, you're gonna be scattered. But if we will humble ourselves, if we will seek God, God will not only restore you, God will use you as a catalyst in the restoration of those around you. Savut that works here, he was the first one in his family to become a Christian. His whole family is Buddhist, they're Cambodian. And so after Savut got saved, he's our college pastor, by the way, after he got saved, he started winning one by one different members of his family. I think there's seven or eight of them now who've come to the Lord over the last couple of years through Savut and through Pip, his cousin. But what happens is God doesn't just restore us, God starts using us to be a part of the restoration process of the people around us. Others are affected by that but it's a state of the heart. It boils down to what are we looking for? Are we looking for comfort and ease and pleasure temporarily? 
or are we seeking the permanent kingdom of God? Do we want a little now or a lot later? Let me tell you how this is gonna come up in practical ways in your life. You young people in this room, listen to me. You're gonna be confronted with conversations at your schools where people are gonna say, well, I believe it's okay to think this, 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 and this. And at that moment, there's gonna be a juncture. Am I gonna take the easy way, the path of least resistance where everyone likes me? Or will I stand by truth in a loving manner, right? Which may cost me my popularity, right? It's not just kids. We adults do it too, don't we? We relent on our beliefs because what it boils down to is I want to be comfortable. I don't want people to not like me. And we come to this juncture, right? We come to this juncture. I'm really trying to build a kingdom of comfort, not the kingdom of God. Can I confess something to you guys? I'm gonna confess something to you. You're gonna think it's really stupid, but I'm gonna confess it to you anyways. Over the last 12 and a half years that I've been a, a pastor of this church, um, I have never been tempted to have an affair on my wife. That's never been a temptation of mine. I've never had a porn addiction. Um, not saying I've been perfect. I'm not saying I've never lusted or anything like that, but sexual sin has never been my, my downfall. Um, in the 12 and a half years that I've been a pastor, uh, power has never been my downfall. I'm not a micromanager. We have about 79 employees between our four churches. And when I walk the halls, I don't bang on the doors and tell people to get to work. And I don't hover over them. I'm not a micromanager. I don't mind sharing the stage with other speakers. I don't, you don't have to walk up and, and, and call me Bishop or something. I don't need that, right? So like, I, I'm okay, right? So power has never been my downfall. Um, I'm not a money person. I'm, I'm glad I have some money. I'm glad that I can take my family on vacation and I can afford a Toyota. You know, I'm glad that, I'm glad that God's been good to me. <laughs> I'm glad that God's been good to me financially. You, you, you guys as a church have been good to, good to my family financially. And that, but I, I'm not driven by money. I've never been, that's not my downfall. I, 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 don't, I don't care much about money. Lately, I'm gonna, this is where I'm gonna confess to you. I have struggled with this. I found myself about eight, eight, nine months ago laying in bed with my wife. She's reading or doing something and I'm on Zillow and I'm looking at houses in Rockland, Maine. See, I have this fantasy that I'm gonna buy a, a summer home in, in a small town in Maine and, and be Stephen King. That's, that's this weird <laughs> fantasy I have. Um, and you think I'm joking, but I, I found myself like, like fantasizing about Retiring at 50, 41. I found myself retired. You, know you know what I lusted for? You know, you know what my temptation was? A life without so much responsibility. 13 years of my life, man, I've dealt with homicides, suicides. I've dealt with awful things. I've been pulled into cases where investigations have gone on about children who've been raped. And I've just seen awful things, horrible things. I get calls in the middle of the night, so-and-so killed so-and-so, my husband left, all, all the 13 years of my life. And I'm not crying the blues. But what ended up happening about eight months ago is I'm like, I would really like to go somewhere where no one knows me and I'd like to write. And I wanna walk two blocks and get fresh lobster. And I just wanna look at the ocean and, and be a nobody. I started having these fantasies about it. How can I retire? How can I do this? And man, just a couple of months ago, as, as firmly as I've ever felt the hand of God, God saying, Corey, I didn't create you and call you to be comfortable. I called you for a greater purpose than that. Now listen, I don't, I don't know if anyone else in this room has come to the crossroad of, I can just take it easy. I don't have to worry about how messy it is out there. I don't have to be generous. I don't have to, you know, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll pay my tithes. You know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll talk to people every once in a while if it's not offensive and if they ask me. And, 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 and maybe I'm not the only one that has come to this fork in the road where I can just kind of do me. I can still go to church on the weekends. I can, you know, I can still look the part, but really it's ultimately about me. Or I can lay my life down at the feet of the cross and say, God, not only have you done everything for me, you've promised me eternity in paradise. I do not belong to myself. Do you know the Bible says that about you? 
that you were bought for a price and you don't even belong to you? It's my body. It's actually not. It's not your body. It's my decision. It's actually not. You've been, if you're a Christian, you've been bought by the blood of Jesus. You do not belong to you. You're supposed to be a living sacrifice to him because he was a living sacrifice for you. And me as a pastor of a big old mega church, it hit me that I had lost my first love, right? That, that I was tempted to just take the path of ease and step out. And that was a sin. And I had to say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. It wasn't porn. It wasn't embezzling money. It wasn't trying to be the next, you know, I don't know, whoever the hotshot pastors are now. It was none of that. I just wanted to get away from my responsibility and be comfortable. And that's just as evil. I don't know where you are in your life. I can tell you this though. If you'll relent and submit yourself to Jesus, it's not easy. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I'm not gonna lie to you. Being a Christian is not easy. And it's gonna get harder. But I think some of us right now need to plant our feet firmly and say, God, you've done everything for me. And it may be hard all hell may come against us, but I'm gonna stand right here. I'm gonna stand right here. Yeah. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and, and maybe you're not a believer, up here on my right, your left, uh, Jonathan Check is coming up here. Jonathan helps with our discipleship process. And um, I don't mean to embarrass him, just several years back, he was not a believer, he was an atheist. If you, uh, if you have any questions about Jesus, if you have any questions about our church, um, come up here and talk to Jonathan. He'd love to talk with you. And he has a very interesting insight to that. There's men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for, for anything in your life, please come get prayer. And then the last thing I really wanna encourage you to do, there is communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see the lamp on a table, there's the body and blood of Jesus. Now today, I'm just gonna let you get that and you can take that personally. And maybe that's a good thing today because I want you to really focus on what Jesus has done for you, that he has died on the cross, that represents his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. And that if we will just ask Jesus to forgive us, if we will humble ourselves and say, Father, we need you, we can take that communion and we can be reminded that, that God is attentive to us, <laughs> that he does love us, that he wants what's best for us. And then if we will just speak with him, he'll show us what to do. Father, we love you. God, when the temptation of comfort and ease and our selfish desires arises, I pray, Father, that you give us the power, God, to, to, to stay focused on you. Even if it's not easy, even if it doesn't make us the most popular people, God, I pray, Lord, that we can stick by you. Lord, for everyone in this room, I pray that you protect them, keep them safe, God. Protect their families, their marriages. If they're single, just protect them as an individual, God. Lord, let us be the light as we leave and go back out into a very dark world. Let us be the ambassadors, Lord, of your truth for you. And God, don't ever let us shy down. Don't ever let us back down. But Lord, keep us strong, God. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, God, and we pray all these things in your son's name. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. I hope you have a great day. You're welcome to help yourself.